0: Hi, this is Martha Group, Superintendent of the Vernon Verona Sherrill Central School District in the heart of Central New York, and you are at the Point of Learning with my friend Peter Horn. Pete and I are currently collaborating on a project to learn from the students in my district what they really think about their experience in school and how school could be better for them. So I'm pleased to introduce Pete's conversation with Jonathan Kozel, an author and education advocate who has kept kids' ideas about school and their ideas about themselves and their lives outside of school at the center of his work for nearly 60 years. Please enjoy the show.
1: On today's show, Jonathan Kozel. On the value of listening to
2: students, I still listen to the children's words whenever I'm in a classroom. Where did I get that tendency? I, it just seemed natural to me. Their language seems so much more interesting than what I call expert language. An
1: interdistrict integration program with a 57-year record of success that should be a model throughout the U.S.
2: This is a beautiful example of what America could be. And with adequate national backing, including ample federal funding to incentivize more metro areas to do this, we could strike a mighty blow against apartheid education in America. And some aims of education. I'd always want to Talk about making education beautiful as well as useful. That there's more to life than corporate utility. There's also elegance and whim and wonderment.
1: Psyched to read Jonathan's latest book, Batter Down the Walls? Well, you can't. Yet. But you can stick around for a sneak preview. Coming right up. A Rhodes Scholar, former fourth grade teacher, and passionate advocate for child-centered learning, Jonathan Kozel is one of the most widely read and highly honored education writers in the nation. His first book, Death at an Early Age, a description of his first year as a teacher, received the National Book Award in 1968. The book that electrified me and many of my peers when I was first considering teaching was Savage Inequalities a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award in 1992. In his 2005 book, The Shame of the Nation, which describes conditions that he found in nearly 60 public schools, Jonathan wrote that inner-city children were more isolated racially than at any time since Brown v. Board of Education. In subsequent books and in his recent lectures, he describes the sensitive and skillful ways that good, enlightened teachers resist the harsh and punitive mentality that stifles curiosity and substitutes the fear of failure for the joy that ought to be a healthy part of learning. In our conversation on today's show, Jonathan offers a sneak preview of his latest book, not yet in print, called Batter Down the Walls. In it, he makes a compelling argument that children have a right to be protected from robotic methods of instruction and destructive forms of discipline that have been accepted in all too many schools that serve our poorest kids of color. Jonathan believes we need to reimagine the aims of education as something more than testable proficiencies. Indeed, it needs to be a cultural awakening that empowers children with critical discernment of an unjust status quo and with the will to batter down the racist walls that make us strangers to each other. I reached Jonathan at his home in Cambridge, Massachusetts by phone in mid-January. We happen to be speaking on Martin Luther King Day. As I think about Dr. King's legacy in the context of this conversation, two coincidences are top of mind for me. First. I believe Dr. King's work was a very real influence in your choice to become a teacher in 1964. Like you consulted with a Boston based colleague of Dr. King's who asked you to consider teaching in Boston's segregated schools as one way to participate in the civil rights struggle. But I also believe that in recent years you have visited several schools named for Dr. King. Could I ask you to begin with a description of one of those schools, either in Boston or elsewhere?
2: Sure. Um, I might begin by saying, um, I've just completed a new book and, uh, the book is called, uh, Batter Down the Walls. And in this book, I, I talk about the, uh, intense and increasing racial isolation of black and Latino children. And, uh, in passing, at one point, I described a school in Boston that I visited, which is named for Dr. Martin Luther King. Like so many of these schools that bear his name, there's a lot of irony involved because it's a. This is a school in in the Roxbury, Dorchester area of Boston, which is the heart of the black community, and uh, it, the school is almost totally uh, black and Latino there. I think the principal told me she has maybe 12 white children in the school. In a school about 500 kids and uh, you know it's a school that's been perennially on various state watch lists and uh, many of these schools are under threat of state takeovers and things like that. The school is very old um, rundown I remember when it was named when it was renamed for dr king in uh in nineteen sixty eight uh, upon his death he had he had actually uh spoken on the front steps of the school around nineteen sixty four uh to a crowd of parents and ministers and other and activists who were who were struggling for for an end to the intense segregation of the schools, and uh, when I visited it was a very tired-looking building, um, in one in one um, class I visited, you could see um, there was like a hole in the ceiling. You know, you could see the pipes and the, with their lining uh, in the in the hole above above my head, as I stood there, and in another classroom, there was it was an old science lab, but uh, most of the lab equipment had been stripped out. And it was a very long, narrow room. I sat in the back row next to a couple of teenage girls, and uh, they could barely hear the teacher from because the way the room's laid out and uh, because lab tables take up so much space and uh, two of the girls sitting next to me were fiddling with their cell phone, yeah. I, don't, I don't blame them because I uh, couldn't even see what was on the board from from that point. On the website of the school it said uh, the Martin Luther King Jr. K.A. school uh, is um, something like the fulfillment of the dream. So, you know, that's what I mean by ironies. Wow. You know, I'm I'm trying in my new book, which I hope will um, go to print by the fall, I'm I'm hoping also to um, sort of open up a separate issue from racial isolation, and that is in many of these schools, many of these segregated schools, it's not simply a matter of physical isolation of minority children, but there's also been the evolution of what I call a disparate agenda, a different curriculum, basically, a whole different mode of discipline, highly punitive, you know, silence in the classroom, Silent when filing in the hallways, um, lists of misbehaviors and lists of penalties for each misbehavior. I mean, even really good teachers who hate all this stuff have no choice about enforcing this. It's all test driven. You know, they, in one of these schools, there was a rule, simply a rule for children no questions. And curiosity was was suppressed, of course, and because that might lead the children off track from the, uh, from the lesson that was drilling them for an upcoming exam. It's like the kids are perceived as if they were a different species of humanity uh, from white middle-class children in America. I contrast this with some really good integrated public schools in what are called cross district integration programs where children from the city, if their parents so wish, are allowed to ride the bus, you know, often just thirty minutes, sometimes a longer ride to in order to go to you know some of the best and well-funded suburban schools. In the urban schools, in many of the the old, uh, the older buildings in segregated districts, the, the physical disrepair is—it's not merely depressing as it was at the MLK school. It's also dangerous. The lead poison, uh, crumbling lead paint in many of these buildings. Uh, uh, children cannot safely drink the water in in thousands of these schools um, because of ancient lead and copper piping. Out in these beautiful suburban schools, you know, usually they're up to date. They may not be brand new buildings but they're in good repair and the atmosphere is, is cheerful. The inner city kids are not seen as if they were uniquely different. The words I tend to hear in some of these inner city schools from a principal is that, well, they wouldn't—they probably wouldn't use the word deficit, but that's really what it amounts to. That this, they see the children as deficit commodities. I—I um, I never sense that out in these good uh, urban suburban integration program.
1: Again, this is an exclusive preview of Jonathan Kozel's next book, Batter Down the Walls, hopefully available as soon as fall 2023. The first half of the book focuses mostly on inner-city schools, but in the second half of the book, Jonathan describes effective inter-district integration programs. Perhaps his favorite is METCO, as in Metropolitan Council for Educational Opportunity, which was founded by parents and educators in the suburbs of Boston in the mid-60s, in collaboration with the NAACP. The Metropolitan Council advocated for a state funding stream for any town wishing to enroll Boston students in that town's own public schools in order to address racial isolation. In 1966, the first 220 students, ages five to 16, were bust from Boston neighborhoods to schools in Arlington, Braintree, Brookline, Lexington, Lincoln, Newton, and Wellesley. Initial funding came from the United States Department of Education and the Carnegie Corporation. Jonathan himself taught in METCO for two years.
2: So ultimately, we opened the program up to approximately 32 suburban districts surrounding Boston, and the program is still going strong today involves about 3,000 children. I argue in the book that it ought to be mightily expanded and it ought to be taken as a model for the nation. It's not without its challenges because, you know, the children are, are going into a, into a world that, that's very different from the one in which they've grown up. Uh, but they start the program early. Uh, I know lots of kids who entered the program when they were in kindergarten or first grade. Their children seem to reach across the lines of class and race far more easily than grown-ups do. They make good friends and uh, at the same time these the, in the best of these schools the ones that are most sensitive a lot of effort has been made to make certain that the curriculum and the books that are used uh, and the atmosphere in general are respectful of the cultural values that these children bring with them. They don't see them as deficit children. They, they see them as children who have gifts to, who have gifts to bring Black children in the program uh, have been academically successful in in ways that one almost never sees in the inner cities. These are kids, I think the, the latest statistic I saw was that 95% of the, of the Mecca kids graduate from high school in four years, maybe even slightly more than that, and that virtually all of them go on to some form of higher education.
1: Jonathan told the story of a METCO alumnus who returned after earning a college degree and no small success as a professional blues and jazz musician. To teach in his old school
2: for three years. I visited his class, an African-American man. He was playing with Southern blues to a class of little kids who were sitting around him in a circle, white, black, Latino, some Asian children, and he was explaining to them how the blues followed the path of black migration northward to Chicago. Just a lovely example of really beautiful multiracial education. You know, not you know not just the ritualistic use of one poem by Langston Hughes. I'd raise the question of why our national leaders don't look at a program like this and say, this is a beautiful example of what America could be. And with adequate national backing, including ample federal funding to incentivize more metro areas to do this, we could strike a mighty blow against apartheid education in America.
1: As, as an educator who loves working with kids, what I find most compelling when, when you write about school is the way that you center the lives and voices of the students. You know, so my first exposure to your ideas was your 1991 bestseller, Savage Inequalities, where you lay out explicitly that because you realized that the voices of children were so often missing from the national conversation about education, you made it a point throughout your reporting for that book to listen very carefully to students and wherever possible to, quote, let their voices and their judgments and their longings find a place within this book and maybe two within the nation's dialogue about their destinies. So I wanted to ask, like, was there a, an aha moment for you when you realized, like, hey, we are systematically missing the voices of these key stakeholders in our school system?
2: Well, I don't think there was any sudden moment like that. I just, um, from the beginning, you know, I began, as I said, teaching in that miserable school in Boston that I described in Death and Early Age. It just, right from the beginning, I found the voices of the children, even when they described something awful, it was still um, invigorating language. You know, it's vital language. So as you know, this is now called student
1: voice. Student voice is the academic term for students' perceptions, especially about school in their own words. And I happen to be rereading two weeks ago what I think is one of the best journal articles on this topic by Allison Cook Sather at Bryn Mawr. And she credits you and this introduction with igniting the scholarly interest in students' perceptions of school. It would seem that it had not really occurred to researchers before then, as it still regrettably does not occur to many educators, to ask students directly what they think about school and how it could be
2: better. I don't even like the phrase um, student voice because, I mean, with all respect for the author you quoted, who I assume must be wonderful because she quoted me. <laughs> I'm just joking. Um, I, I, don't, I, I don't like the tendency of education experts to um, what I call reify every idea by coming up with a new trendy phrase for it. So, you know, student voice, I guess, is the current, current word for what I just would call listening to kids and, um, and taking pleasure in their often very funny way of, of, of stating things. On sometimes heartbreaking way, I'm thinking of a child, I believe she was at a, um, like in a, an elementary school in the South Bronx. She wrote me a letter, that's it, the teacher sent me a bunch of letters from the class and um, one of the children, a little girl, wrote, um, she was comparing her school to what she thought a school that she thought I probably had gone to since I was a white privileged man and she said, you have clean things we do not have. She didn't finish the second sentence. you have clean things, we do not have. That to me is more powerful than any thousand words from some academic expert on inequality. (laughs) Uh, And um, I still listen to the children's words whenever I'm in a classroom. Where did I get that tendency? As I said, it just seemed natural to me Their language seems so much more interesting than what I call expert language. I just sometimes wish you could plunk some of these kids down in 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 an education graduate program for a moment and just um, let them ramble on for a few minutes and sort of wake up the experts. (laughs)
1: Jonathan cited as someone who taught him a great deal about listening, none other than Mr. Rogers. Yes, uh, that Mr. Rogers, the longtime creator of and advocate for high-quality programming for children. Jonathan writes about their friendship in his forthcoming book,
2: but gives us a little taste here. Fred Rogers. And Fred came a friend of mine mostly in the last decade of his life. He went with me to visit to, to go and and listen to children in the Bronx. Uh, I took him to a school with that I'd been that I'd been writing about and uh, but one, one where the principal was a little more progressive than others and where she loved the idea of having Mr. Rogers coming and right. talking to her little kids and some of the teachers wept they were so moved to see Fred Rogers squeeze his bottom into those little chairs, you know, and, and he was very good at not only eliciting children's questions, but letting them ramble on as, as long as they wanted. I miss him terribly.
0: Is Heather Carson-Wake, a reading specialist and literacy coach in Buffalo Public Schools and a proud supporter of Point of Learning Podcast. My grandfather sent me a copy of Savage Inequalities 30 years ago after he had heard Jonathan Kozol on PBS speaking about the sad state of the schools he had visited. My grandfather knew I had just begun my career in teaching, and his gift of Kozol's books led to many enlightening conversations between us that I'll always cherish. Speaking of conversations, conversations like the one I'm interrupting right now, just for a second, I promise, are why I support this show, all about what and how and why we learn. Yes, I am a teacher, but this podcast is for anyone curious about big ideas, like how we make childhood better for all kiddos that really matter to everyone. If you're able to kick in a few dollars a month or a one time contribution of any amount, click the link in the show's notes. Thank you. And back to Pete's conversation with John Kozal.
1: Probably the central savage inequality, uh, you know, that maybe is at the center <laughs> of that book, is that this disparity of funding between wealthy communities and poor communities based on property taxes. Um, You know, that's the way that that works. If you could wave a wand and change one thing about U.S. education, would it be the way that schools are funded? I heard you when we were talking about Metco, for example, infusing it with a lot more federal dollars.
2: If I had a magic wand, I think I would start with the, what I call the elephant in the middle of the room, which is apartheid education. And I would do anything I could to encourage school districts to open up the gates. I think white kids benefit every bit as much as poorest black and Latino kids do when they can learn together. And I deeply regret that President Biden, whom I naturally voted, that he's always turned his back on school integration. Uh, And he tries to thread the needle by saying, he used to say he was in favor of integration, but he was opposed to busing. So, you know, I thought, well, that's intellectually quite fascinating to be in favor Integration, but opposed to the one and only way by which to make it possible, I still regret that he's never he's never repented of his years and years the years and years in which he added a stigma to the word busing and he was very good at doing that because when when the southern racists um, with the su- the southern senators uh, with whom he allied himself when they when they condemned busing, you know it had the taint of the the taint of Southern racism, but when Biden did it in his more civilized style, it had a, a lasting impact. I hope you'll indulge me this bit of historical
1: recording because I've been very attuned to Jonathan's published writing and public appearances over the last several years, hoping at some point he'd be a guest on the show. On June 6, 2019, The Nation magazine published an op ed by Kozl lambasting then candidate Biden for collaborating with segregationists as a staunch opponent to bussing kids from black and brown neighborhoods to wealthier white schools. Exactly three weeks later, this infamous moment occurred during a Democratic presidential debate. The speaker, then the junior senator from California, is now Vice President Kamala Harris.
0: And I'm going to now direct this at Vice President Biden. Um, I do not believe you are a racist. And I agree with you. When you commit yourself to the importance of finding common ground. Mm -hmm. But I also believe, and it is personal, and I was actually very, it was hurtful to hear you talk about the reputations of two United States senators who built their reputations and career on the segregation of race in this country. And it was not only that, but you also worked with them to oppose busing. And, you know, there was a little girl in California who was part of the second class to integrate her public schools, and she was bused to school every day. And that little girl was me.
1: The historical sidebar has concluded. Back to
2: the show. If I had two magic wands, the second one would be to um, alter entirely the way we finance education in America. In that respect, I haven't changed in my view since savage inequalities. Uh, so long as we base the primary source of funding on local wealth, local property, our schools will never, we will never have equal education in America. In my belief, school funding ought to be a national obligation. Money to fund our public schools should come from the real wealth of the nation, which is to say from the federal government. You know, kids, don't go to school, and each morning in schools where they still say the pledge, they don't say a pledge to the state of New Hampshire. They say a pledge to the flag of the United States, one nation indivisible. And uh, you know, uh, I just uh, I cringe when I think of the way of 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 the deception that we we're conveying to children when we ask them to. To, when we ask them to speak those words if we're going to say the pledge I think we have to revise it I would certainly make it clear that the words of the pledge are aspirational that they don't describe the nation in which we live today but as I say my book ends on a more hopeful note I know something that works because I've seen it and I, I taught in Metco for two years myself by the way But I follow it to the present day. I know a little girl right now who's uh, not only doing wonderfully academically, but her white classmates, some of them from the suburbs, come into Roxbury sometimes on weekends and stay uh, for for sleepovers. Good God, um, in this nation which is torn apart by hatred and fear of each other. This is the kind of model we should treasure. You know, I won't live to see it, that I'm I'm 86 now. But I just hope that there's a day when um, we can break down these walls and instead of thinking of a, of this as um, you know as an exceptional program of of interdistrict integration, create entire metro area school districts, which the city district and suburban districts are open to each other could also create such marvelous magnet schools within the cities that a lot of the suburban kids will make the ride in reverse Uh, especially in this area around boston you know with boston's incredible um, research community bio labs and great and world famous hospitals also it's rich theatrical life and artistic cultural centers, um, you know, great art museums, and including black history museums, but also, you know, all the treasures of the Renaissance in in some of the beautiful museums here. You know, we could create incredible magnet schools affiliated with with these institutions, you know, including internships at the famous Children's Hospital of Boston, you know, I just think the possibility is there, and that's why I end the book on an optimistic note. I've added an epilogue to my new book, a rather long epilogue, which is called A Letter to the Future. The whole theme of the epilogue is that the humanities are, are being left out to dry, dry and die in all too many schools in the United States, because there's this cult of, um, you know, teaching literacy as a science, but divorcing it entirely from literature. I, I quote a teacher in Virginia who, um, who had a wonderful background in literature and wanted to bring in some some really good novels. To her fifth-grade kids, that she wasn't allowed to do this because the entire curriculum was built upon tiny little snippets of writing that were called text passages, which were basically practice tests, and they do this for like six weeks before every every exam. So, I wrote this epilogue from from the heart of somebody who's been immersed in the humanities my whole life, you know. I majored in literature as an undergrad at Harvard and then briefly at Oxford and I think that if we simply reduce literacy to a mechanistic skill, we're falling into a dangerous trap. Yes, of course we need kids to read, we need to teach phonics and all the basic skills of sounding out words and then comprehending them, but I think it, it, it... it's sort of like cultural starvation if we leave out the richness of the very hungry caterpillar and the grouchy ladybug and and you know for older kids uh, uh, a wrinkle in time, number of the stars for still older kids the bluest eye and uh, maybe the bear, of Faulkner. I treasure all that and I think. That, that whatever the race and cultural background of the child, they're going to be kind of impoverished if, if they grow into adulthood without, without any of this. It's going to make very narrow citizens, I think. I, I'd say it's a kind of brittle literacy, a culturally hungry literacy. Right. Well, well, we'll point again to the
1: division. You know, where the where rich kids will be able to think about ideas, and poor kids will be able to think about skills. Yes. Or text packets, as you as you say.
2: Yeah, these things are just awful. Um, they're so boring. Um, and I used to when I used to lecture and more often because I don't travel now. I do it. I do them. I do lectures by Zoom. When they, the college would ask me for a title. If I was kind of lazy and wasn't sure what I was really going to say by the time I got there, I would say, I'm going to lecture on joy and justice. And justice had a a great deal to do with what amounts to apartheid in in our public schools and the pretense of urban school officials that they can achieve perfectible apartheid, high-scoring apartheid. So, you know, that would be the justice part of it. But the joy part of it, I'd always want to talk about making education beautiful as well as useful. That there's more to life than corporate utility. There's also elegance and whim and wonderment. Amen.
1: That's it for today's show. Thanks so much to Jonathan Kozl for joining me. His next book, Batter Down the Walls, will be available everywhere, hopefully as soon as this fall. Thanks as always to Schaefer James for intro and outro music. Having recently performed throughout Southeast Asia, Australia, Europe, and the UK, Schaefer is beginning a US tour as this episode drops. And he just released his new album, Shipwreck, which features some string tracks by a fiddler called Peter Horn. Check out SchaeferJames.com for all the details. Special thanks for music on this episode to pianist Gil Scott Chapman and guitarist Josh Lerner. A former student of mine, Josh is now an educator and academic leader based in Chicago who recalls being addressed by Kozel's work when he was first studying to be a teacher. Gil was never formally my student, though he remains exhibit A for why, if at all possible, you should get a baby grand piano donated to your English classroom. Someone nearly as gifted as Gil may wander in one day to ask if they can try it out. Finally, thanks to you for listening, rating, reviewing, and supporting this show however you can. If you can think of just one person who would especially appreciate this episode, maybe a teacher, please send them a link. It will mean most coming from you. Point of Learning is written, recorded, edited, mixed, and mastered by me here in sunny Buffalo, New York. I'm Peter Horn, and I'll be back at you in a month or so with a brand new episode featuring Grammy-winning performance artist Rindy Eckert. You're gonna love it, so see you then.
2: It was about 10 years ago when the banning the book cult began. Somebody called me up from um, Tucson and said the state came in and took all the books from the shelves, writing by Cesar Chavez and um, Isabel Allende, but also um, James Baldwin and um, Howard Zinn. And and amazingly, Shakespeare's play The Tempest, (laughs) uh, which which they somehow thought was revolutionary. And then he said, they also removed your book, Savage Inequalities. So my friend said, you're in good company. Do you think that was the radical part of The
1: Tempest that they objected to? You know, oh brave new world that has such creatures in it? Was that the idea?
2: It may have been. It may have been. Um it's a long since I've read it, but um what was the name of the um Caliban? Caliban, yeah. I think yeah. they I think they probably saw Caliban as a potential Che Guevara. <laughs> 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 I, I'm I'm not sure, I'm
0: just joking.